Well, welcome to the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. My name's David Galea, and it's great to have you along for another episode. So to kick off, let's get straight into some music, and we're listening to a track from Sydney bass player and composer Brendan Clark. In 2013, he released an album called Stretch, which featured Andrew Gander on drums, Carl Drewhurst on guitar, and Murray Jackson on alto saxophone. So here is a track from that, and it's entitled Hi-Fi.
That was a super funky groove there from Brendan Clark and his album Stretch. Well, now it's a pleasure to introduce to you our featured artist. That is Julian Wilson, composer and saxophonist from Melbourne. And in 2019, him and his fellow cohorts, Jonathan Schwartz, Hamish Stewart and Mike Nock, released an album called This World. So to introduce us to that album, let's listen to a track off it called Old's Cool by Mike Nock. Thank you. 
Well, it's my great pleasure now to welcome to the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast, Julian Wilson. Thanks, David. Good to see you. It's totally my pleasure, mate. And before we talk about This World, which you recorded with Mike Nock, Hamish Stewart and Jonathan Schwartz, I'd just love to talk to you about how you've been coping musically um, with the current COVID situation. Physically, I've been um, trying to get up early and go for a walk every day. And um, or uh, or a bike ride or a run a little bit lately, but I haven't been running much for a while. And play saxophone uh, each day, and it's it's ch- it's a challenge. I know a lot of people have been saying, you know, they've got all this time now, but the motivation's hard to keep going when you're not playing. I mean, I think I've done three gigs since March, and they were in they were within eight days of each other in June when the clubs opened up for two and a half weeks or something, well, uh, Jazz Lab opened up. I did a Monday and a Tuesday and the next Tuesday and then it closed down again within a week. So, but that little period of playing to 20 people at a time and we, because, you know, the numbers went from letting 50 into just before the gig started, it was down to 20. So we did two sets of 20 people each and um, went and had some tacos across the road and really the hang was amazing. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, playing music was incredible. It was probably the greatest, um, some of the greatest musical experience of my life, just getting to play with um, with friends live on stage together and react in real time with other people yep. and getting to play and move air in a room with with people in that are excited to hear music, um, hearing applause at the end of the song. Was yeah. <laughs> and getting to uh, getting to have tacos and have a drink with the band and and. The hang, because that's that's a large part of what everyone's missing is just connection with other people. Yeah, that's true. We have been missing that connection. And do you think looking forward that as musicians we're less likely to take the privilege of performing uh, and the joy of performing for granted? Yeah, look, there, there is a privilege to performing and I think it's um, – it's therapy for a lot of us as well, and it's connection, and it's it's our social life, and it's it's everything. When you, I mean, I kind of feel well prepared for what's happened this year because as a musician, I've um, you know we we've spent our lives sitting in a room by ourselves for six or eight hours a day. That's right. Doing our own thing. <laughs> That's you it, know, yeah. for, and we've never had any money anyway, so that doesn't make a lot of difference. You know, we love isolation. <laughs> you know, we love isolation and being broke. So um, it's, but the the motivation to you know to learn the tunes for Friday's gig or to get out there or or again the hang or the social interaction of doing that or getting your ass kicked by doing a wedding and realizing you don't know enough songs because you haven't done that sort of thing for a while. You know, all those things, all that interaction that comes from a gig that's uh, it's not always it's not always the obvious things.
So going forward and sort of looking back, do you think we'll find a silver lining in this pandemic musically that we can look back and go, you know what, that was tough, but you know, all of these great things came out of this tough situation? I get the feeling, um, you know, people who really want to play music still find ways to play music. And I think... I mean, I've talked to some students about this this year because a lot of people want to defer and I totally understand that. Um, I totally understand that. That makes a lot of sense. Take some time off, get some lessons. You're going to be at home anyway. Like I said to you before, you could get a lesson with John Coltrane or, or Miles Davis or something, you know, probably for 50 bucks online. Yep. You know, yeah, rather, exactly. If you're not going to the institution and you're doing it at home, you could do it with anyone. You go. I've been watching some um, Barry Harris workshops online. A few things that I've been putting off for a long time. I've been working on this book by Miles Okazaki, this rhythmic book, and doing that with my students. And um, and I think going back into playing gigs, I'm going to be more aware of, more, maybe a little more discerning about which ones I choose because that packing up everything and you know filling the car with all the stuff and running there and set it up and spend your money on a meal and do the gig and pack it up and maybe have another meal, maybe hang out with someone, maybe maybe drop in somewhere else, you know, worry about your gear being in the car on the way home, like set it all up again the next morning. So, some, you know, it's it's nice just going to bed and getting up and it's still all there like it was yesterday. I mean, I don't really, like I said, I've got a few different things, but I don't really have that luxury of having, my, you know, like some people go to the office. Like if people do a, a musical show or something, they might have, you know, the, the, all their second instruments set up and just leave them there. And have your practice horns, teaching horns, gig horns at home, you know. I've kind of never had that um, regular office thing. It's always been every gig is a separate entity in itself and every week's different. And it gets kind of, it does get exhausting after a while. So compared to pre, pre-COVID and maybe even years ago in the scene here in Melbourne um, and throughout Australia, do you feel like as musicians our approach to each gig is going to be different? For example, are you, do you sort of feel like you will be approaching your music and your opportunities to perform differently now, or particularly when we, when we go back to performing live again? It's a funny thing because we, we've kind of had this, um, I heard all about this Melbourne-Sydney thing when I was a kid and then I met all these cats from Sydney at Wangaratta the first year I went, these guys are great, what are they talking about? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's great people everywhere you go. And, um, but the the... The vibe was always that there were more gigs in Melbourne, you know, and I remember there's certain years looking back where there's been influxes of people from Adelaide and Brisbane and Perth and all roll up at the same time, maybe a couple from Christchurch or something, Wellington. Um, There'll be a year where 10 people arrive in town and there's all these new cats to play with and there'll be a few, um, you know, young players that come up as well at the same time and all of a sudden the scene kind of flips on its head and changes and there's all this new exciting stuff going on. Um, but there has always been this feeling that Melbourne's got a lot of gigs, but Sydney doesn't have as many gigs, but they, they do pay a little better, but it costs a lot more money to live there. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you buy, buy a house and the house price goes up, but then you've got to sell it, you've still got to buy another one. That's there? right, you know, yeah. It, it's, all re- it's all relative. So um, I my feeling, though, was, um, you know, that we – because we had the opportunity to play a lot down here and because it didn't pay much, maybe it was always this rough and ready kind of thing. Well, that's ah, another gig, throw it on the pile, you know, whereas in Sydney they were, you know, if you only do a gig, you know, with your own band a couple of times a year, then you make sure it's you bring a it. really yeah. good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you can't afford to, you can't afford to mess that up when you don't have many opportunities. Yeah. So, so the, having lots of opportunities is kind of a two-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. then you get a bit sort of, that's very fair with it, you know. Ah, oh, well, there'll be another one. There'll be a gig next week. We'll fix it up then. Yeah. I think residencies are a bit like that too. Like when I have residencies for two months, it often seems like the first and the last one are busy. And then the ones in between, people are, ah, whatever, I can go next week. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if there's only, you know, Wayne Shorter comes to town, he's only playing one show. Everyone's, everyone's there. there. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So you mentioned earlier that Wangaratta was a great place for you to meet some of these guys from Sydney. 
And I was wondering, you know, and, and that whole subject of Wangaratta is an, another podcast in itself on how important that festival really is to Australian jazz musicians. But was it also this festival where you met guys like Mike Nock, Hamish Stewart and Jonathan Schwartz? Can we trace your collaboration with these guys back to that festival? That's a really good question, man. Probably. I've met a lot of people at Wangaratta. Um, the first time I went there was 94 and I met the guys I was talking about were Cameron Undy. Carl Dewhurst and Simon Barker, who I just hung out with the whole weekend and loved. And, and yeah, they were cool. playing with um, – Simon wasn't playing with – they were playing with Louis Vedette and Lisa Perrot, who were amazing musicians. And I got to play with Kathy Harley and Alan Turnbull and uh, Craig Scott on the first night and and um, hear Paul Finesse and oh, who else was up there. There's so many – such a wide variety of fantastic musicians. Um Hamish, oh, I don't know. I could have met Hamish in a hundred different places. Mike, I may have met at Wangaratta. Um, I played with him in, I think the first time I played with him was in Sydney. I had a trio gig with Cameron and Simon and Cameron said, oh, I bumped into Mike today in the street and, and um, booked him for your gig. <laughs> oh, did oh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. It was amazing actually because I'd done a few gigs with Mike playing his music and that gig was really special because we, we were playing my music essentially, but I, mostly we just played a bunch of standards. And I'd never heard Mike really just play uh, really freely and openly like that. With You know, it had always been rehearsal and there was the pressure to get a lot of things together quickly. Again, there's that theme coming back, you know. You've got a two-hour sound check and you've got to learn ten tunes and everyone wants to run the rehearsal. <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I've... Rec- Recorded with Mike with his little big small band in Melbourne. And um, Matt, Steve Maggs and I have done some trio things with Mike. Oh, yeah. And I'd never played – oh, I did that. Actually, that's probably the one time I played quartet with him was with Cameron and Simon. I'd booked a trio oh, right. and yep. Mike sat in. But um, apart from that, I'd never played quartet with him. Jonathan I've played with um, – I actually met Jonathan in Finland. All right. When I was on tour with Ishish and he was on tour with Bernie McGann's trio and I'd only heard Bernie once or twice and, and I got to hear him eight times in two weeks. It was just wow, fantastic. Wow, that would have been. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had each band, Tim Stevens' trio was there as well. We, each band had four gigs in Finland and then four gigs in Italy and I got to go to see every one of Bernie's gigs and it, it really changed me, you know, seeing him play that many times and, and getting to know him and hanging out waiting for the bus and in the hotel lobby and getting hang out. That's all that stuff you were talking about before, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah all that know. stuff we, we like missed Like in the hotel. And, yeah, everyone else goes to bed and it's just me and Bernie sitting up um, with vodka <laughs> and some sleeping pills or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know, insomniac. Like on the other side of the world, it's like two in the morning, can't go to sleep.
So how did this world come together? Who was the driving force in getting it off the ground? I went up to Sydney in late 2018 and did a gig with Jonathan and Hamish in this tiny little um, restaurant in Surrey Hills called Mamasa, which is a great spot. It's got about four tables in it. It's like it's tiny, 20 people is packed. And Hamish and Jonathan and I had done it before with Carl Dewhurst and Jonathan said, look... um, Carl can't do it, but who should we get? I said, get Mike Knock. I mean, I was joking. You know, Mike's like <laughs> 70. He's turning 80 next week. Wow, is he? Right. So he would have been 78. And I'm like, and he'd broken his arm and he hadn't played for six months. And we played standards and we did Ellington tunes. And that first um, time playing was really fun. And Hamish had just a snare drum and a ride cymbal. And it's a wooden stage. So he uses the floor as a kick drum. Oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just kicks the floor and yep. um, really simple and really fun. And I rang Jonathan a week later and said, um, I think the next night after that I played at another club with Jonathan again and Carl Dewhurst and we played all Dexter Gordon songs basically, maybe a couple of Bernie McGann tunes in the last set. So I rang Jonathan and, said, and I rang Mike actually and said, look, I, I think we should record. And my friend Richie who runs the studio said he'd like to record us duo. And Mike said, oh, that's funny. I've just had Jonathan on the phone. And he said he's talking to Hamish. And Hamish said, we, we should record as a quartet. So <laughs> we all kind of had the same idea at the same time. So it seemed like it should be a cooperative, a collaborative effort. Because it really was. And and um, Jonathan, um, to his credit, got got us some money, put it in the grant application. And um, got us some money to book a nice studio and book a great engineer. And, um, and we... Uh, Ross Ahern and we went to Sony which Ross helped build in the late 70s early 80s I think so Ross knows that space really well he really has nailed it on this recording it strikes you when you listen to it just how clear and pristine the recording really is 
yeah, like I said, Ross helped build that studio, but when we got there, he had his own his own door mixing desk thing set up on top of the massive mixing desk. He wasn't using the built-in stuff. He brought his own equipment, and he was recording at 384, which I've never even heard of. I mean, there's, you know, 96 is high def, and then there's... I mean, you know, the, the numbers don't really matter. He, he knew he knows what he's doing. But you hear it in the sound. You can hear yeah, it. Yeah, and it was I think that he was really disappointed it only got mixed at ninety six. But I mentioned if you're doing multiple mixes and you're saving everything at that size, it's gonna take up yeah. <laughs> masses of hard drive space, you know. When listening to this album and particularly thinking about Mike Nock, you know, you can just hear how music has kept him vibrant. Like I remember you were saying at the time he'd sort of just come off from a recovered broken arm. And there was a big benefit concert about, you know, helping Mike out when he got hit by that SUV. But when you listen to Riverside, that track that you wrote, he seems to just attack it with this vibrance of like he's a young musician that's just burst into the scene. Is that how you remember it in the studio when you recorded with him? It was kind of it was kind of tense. Mike's pretty intense, man. Mike's really yeah. Mike's really intense, man. He shouts a lot, you know. <laughs> no, Mike's great, man. He's just like he's he's very um, opinionated, and he's very when he makes up his mind, that's it. Yep. You know, no, 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 that's that's it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, and and he doesn't waste any time after that. It's like I think Mike, I really like Take Two. No, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So um, and um. Look, I think, like I said before, I played with Mike playing his tunes with big groups and playing with a small group is a, is a real treat because there's space and yep. it's a more democratic thing. And, and the less people there are, the less you need to write. Like if you've got a big band, you can't just say, let's just play a blues. I mean, you could, no. but it's, you know. Yeah, yeah, if you've yeah. got a duet, you can say, let's just play colour. Exactly, yeah. Or let's just play this scale. I mean, Coltrane's quartet, you know, famously he'd just come in and say, oh, I'm going to play, let's play this, and he'd play us five notes. Yeah. That's the thing, you know. Um, and it, with a group that knows each other well. And obviously this is a first time outing as a quartet, but there's a bunch of experience. They've played heaps as a trio. Yeah, they've yeah, played, right. They've yeah. all played in each other's bands. I've played in... All of their bands, I think, I, I don't know if Hamish has actually booked me for a gig, but we've done so many different things together. I thought of them when I was writing a lot, but I thought of simple vehicles and I thought of um, uh, stories that I could tell them about the songs. The songs were, they're not programmatic, but they were written with things in mind, <clears throat> stories in my life in mind, so I could tell the guys those stories and that could inform the way they would play those tunes, you know. Like Riverside was really written around an Aretha Franklin vibe for me. Yeah, right. And um, when she passed away, we had a gig in Sydney and I, I uh, worked on a song of hers <clears throat> that's not like that one. But um, I was listening to this Aretha Sings the Blues album a lot and I love that record and I wanted to write something that I thought Aretha could sing. Yeah. So for that, <clears throat> for Riverside, it's a really long form, like I said, but it's a really simple, singable song. And I made a point of leaving a lot of space in the melody, which, as I said, has been a lifelong challenge for me. And then you've got somewhere to build and something to build, and it gives Mike room to play yeah. around it in a lot. And he does, because I gave him room in that tune, it's built into it, then he gets to really push his way through and come out. Yeah. And, um, and it's about a... Um, a church, I used to live next to this church in Riverside in, in New York, just at the bottom of Harlem. And sometimes on Sundays I'd go to get milk uh, a little late and I from the, the church was between my house and the grocery store and I'd pop my head in there and it was like hearing Aretha and Stevie Wonder with yeah. a 10-piece band and a 100-piece gospel choir, you know. It was amazing. And um, I kind of imagined that that vibe.
So when you're presenting tunes to the band and you often hear people say about instrumental music, well, it's hard to know the meaning behind it because there's no lyrics and things like that. But when it comes to pitching the song to the band, do you explain to the guys in the band, you know, for example, I wrote this song about a church in Harlem. And, you know, do you find that's necessary when you're getting the music together to get the guys in the picture for performing that music? I rarely... I rarely do it, but um, it ma- it does make a difference. Yeah, I think if there's a strong thing there, and and that, you know that becomes a thing where when we do the gig, we we made a, a pact that we would all have to introduce the thing because it's a democratic band. We'd all have to introduce our own songs. So I kind of there's a little bit of uh, I'm not really a cabaret or showman, but there's a little bit of showmanship in telling the story, sort of the same way each time. And just whittling it down and refining it, and maybe little, little, you know, take a little tangent here or there on a different, a different gig, a different day, but um, but setting the scene for that. And it's interesting how people, how listeners do react to that when you, because uh, that's what I love about instrumental music. It doesn't tell you what to think because there isn't a story vocally. I mean, I can never relate to the story anyway with vocals in songs to tell you. I never understand the words. And uh, or the meaning of the story behind them, but um, yeah, it does. Uh, people um, respond to it really well, and that thing of each having a, a spot in the in the show where you talk about your own tune was was really fun to do that way. We did the album on the gig in the order it's on the record. All right, cool. I mean, it shouldn't be revolutionary or anything, but it's something I've never done before. Yeah. I like to change it up all the time. Like when I go for a bike ride or a walk, it's always a circle because I cannot go in a straight line and come back on the same yeah, track. Yep. I, it drives me nuts. Yep. Um, so the gig is the same. We did nine songs and regardless of if we had um, two 50-minute sets or one 70-minute set, we would do the nine songs. So we'd do four in one set and five in the other or we'd do all nine on the one set uh, sometimes yep. blew out a little bit longer than 70 minutes i imagine yeah um until the last gig when we started with the blues of mine that's the bonus track we didn't go there and then we did it all in a different order and it was fun you know it was yep, the last yep. one i yep. took my effects on the gig that i hadn't used the whole tour so that that was a really interesting um process of playing the same show every night yeah and again we tell the same stories and um in, in, or different stories, or we tell the same stories in different ways, and um, sometimes we wouldn't, you know, a story would get dropped that had sort of become the show that we morphed between two tunes. So one of the songs became a feature for Jonathan to play solo out the front after the second or third gig, and certain things happened. Yeah, yep. Um, some songs, it's funny, it's that some songs are open to being different, and yep. some songs are always the same. Like yeah, the sax solo always goes first, or it was really fun opening up different tunes and in different ways on different gigs. Sometimes playing one tune long and another one short and doing it different the next night. We sold CDs on the tour. That's good. That's where that's I was good. going. Sorry, the, yep. it was the long way. Yeah, no, in the scenic no. Yeah, and that's where if people are going to buy a CD because they they want to take something home with them that they've just seen. They love it. Like if they've loved it. And yeah, so if you play the songs that are on the CD. And yep. if you play them in this even further to the point, if you play the same songs in the same order with the same band that's on the CD, you'll you'll sell. You'll sell. Yeah. That's not why I play music, but but it is nice to get rid of them. Of course. And get some money back and be able to make another one, maybe. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, but I've seen this happen at festivals a lot. Like you go up to Wangaratta, you play a CD launch with the same band that's on the CD and you play all the material, you sell you know, truckloads yep. of CDs after the gig. Yeah. If you have a band that is not the same as the CD or the CD is a couple of years old, you play different tunes, you might sell a couple. Yeah, yeah. People want to take home a bit of what they just saw. That's right, yep. So before we wrap it up, mate, what, what are you checking out that's helping you keep the fire alive musically so you can keep pushing through, as we mentioned right at the beginning, this COVID-19 period? A couple of months ago, when we got locked down again, I started transcribing some Dexter Gordon again. And I just, I was like, man, you know what? I love doing this. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And you're thinking, you know, I'm in my 40s, you'd be like, isn't transcribing something you do when you're young? I still get so much from it, man. I love it. Yeah. yeah Barney yeah. told me he went on tour with Gary Bartz um, to Brazil last year. And Gary had this gig. He was playing lots of Charlie Parker with strings, um, the tunes from that record. And he had a gig coming up. It was Bird at um, Bird at 100 years old or something and um, with two other sax players. So he was... This is Gary Bartz, who's 78, I think. Right. And on every gig, he's in the dressing room three or four hours before the gig. Like, all day, he'd just go in the dressing room and he's shredding Charlie Parker solos. He's got them all <laughs> written out and he's practising all these bird solos. <laughs> I mean, he's here, Ferris Sanders, and he's still, 60 yep. years later, man, he's still working on Coltrane stuff. Yep, yep. You know, he went through his whole thing, his own thing, really young, and I'm sure he was encouraged to do that by train and by... Those other cats, and then he's like, you know, there's still still stuff to learn, still things depth to plumb in there. George Garzone came and stayed with me a few years ago when he first came to Australia, and I said, so I hadn't seen him for a few years, and and um, so what what are you checking out lately? Like, is there any cool, you know, who's the new cats on the scene in New York? He says, oh, I'll play you something. He pulls out his iPod. We're in the car. I took him up the hills. We'll see the kangaroos and uh, wombats and stuff. And he puts on Coltrane. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went to with him again uh, two two years ago now, and we get in the car, and it's the new train thing's just come out. Yeah, like three times, three times in the car and at home, just same record, same yeah. record, even not even two different things. Just like, uh, yeah, I'm checking this one out. Yep, there's still there's still more in there. Yeah, there's gold in them hills. There is. Right? <laughs> Uh, well, Julian, it's been awesome to have you on the show and we appreciate you talking to us about the making of This World with Jonathan Schwartz, Hamish Stewart and Mike Nock and also helping us to understand how you're coping with COVID-19 at the moment musically and how you're keeping motivated. We appreciate that. Great, man. Thanks so much.
So that was the title track from the collaboration between Mike Nock, Jonathan Schwartz, Hamish Stewart and Julian Wilson and that track was called This World which was written by Jonathan Schwartz. Well we've come to the end of another show. It's been great to have you along and I hope you've enjoyed the interview with Julian Wilson talking about his collaboration with Hamish Stewart, Mike Nock and Jonathan Schwartz in the making of This World. Also, it was great to hear music from Sydney bass player and composer Brendan Clark. Well, if you'd like to keep in touch with the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast, please send us an email to australianjazzandgroovepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Facebook or Instagram page. Google those, you'll be able to find those. We thank you for your support so far and we hope that you continue to support this music. Please go and buy the music that you hear, whether that be on Bandcamp or other platforms so that we can support these wonderful artists. So until our next episode, it's bye for now. 